Let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Now, so far in, uh, in chapter 3, Paul has been laying out for us the nature of true salvation. And he has been warning us against some of the dangerous misunderstandings that some people have about salvation. And that continues here. Ultimately, this morning, we're going to talk about sharing in Christ's sufferings, which Paul addresses in verse 10. And we're going to deal with what that means and with what that doesn't mean. But it's going to take us a bit to get to that point. So let's begin by reading verses 7 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, before we get into the question of how we share in Christ's sufferings, I want to consider broadly what it was that Jesus did as a man. What did he accomplish through his time on earth? Now, the overarching singular answer to that question is that Jesus accomplished the redemption of man. That is what Scripture says. John 3.16, you know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then, in verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is the reason that Jesus became a man. And in 1 John 4, verse 14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That is what he did. But if we break it down a little further than that, what did he need to do in order to accomplish that? What was necessary for God the Son to do as a man in order to redeem 
mankind. Well, the first thing that he had to do was fulfill all righteousness. Jesus said this to John the Baptist when when he went to John to be baptized in Matthew chapter 3. But Jesus answered him in verse 15. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John baptizing Jesus was part of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. Now, we looked at this in more detail last week. God had laid out a standard of righteousness for all men. A man could only have right standing with God if this righteousness was fulfilled. A man could only enter into eternal life if this standard was met. But not a one of us have done it. We have all fallen short. Fallen short of what God requires of us and of the glorious reward that he has prepared for us. So if Jesus was going to redeem us, the first thing that he had to do was to fulfill that righteousness for us. And he did. He committed no sin, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, verse 22. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. From the moment that Jesus was conceived and throughout all of his life, he practiced perfect righteousness. Not only did he never transgress the law of God, he always walked in perfect submission to the Father, honoring his Father and keeping the Father in his rightful place as God. The Father testified to this. After Jesus said that he was to fulfill all righteousness, and then after John baptized him, the Father spoke from heaven in Matthew 3.17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus did what was necessary to please the Father. Jesus satisfied the Father's righteous requirement. He fulfilled all righteousness. And that was a significant and necessary part of accomplishing the redemption of man. But there was more that he had to do. The second thing he had to do on our behalf was to endure the Father's wrath for our sin. Now, this was plainly prophesied in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. What else can that mean except that he was punished 
in our place. That he was punished so that we would not need to be punished. This was always the plan of God. That God, in the person of the Son, would become a man and would pay the penalty for our sin. God is rightfully angry at sin. His wrath is justly accumulating. Romans 2 verse 5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What a terrifying thought that is. That people are storing up for themselves the wrath of an all-powerful God as they live in denial of their culpability to Him. And one day, the full force of His wrath will be unleashed on them. And then it will be too late to do anything about it. And that wrath will be poured out on them for all eternity. But Jesus took that wrath. It was poured out on him instead. In Romans 3, verse 24 and 25, Paul describes Jesus as a propitiation. Propitiation means satisfaction particularly of wrath. It means the appeasement of of judgment. God's righteous wrath. His wrath at our sin was satisfied or appeased when that wrath fell on Jesus. 1 John 2, verse 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He satisfied the Father's wrath for our sin. Something happened while Jesus was hanging on the cross. Something that goes beyond the physical suffering inflicted on our Lord by his executioners. As horrible as that was, As Jesus hung there, the Father poured out on him wrath that was equal to an eternity in hell. Because that is the just penalty for our sin. That is the extent of the Father's wrath that is stored up for our sin. And Jesus endured it this is what paul meant when he wrote in galatians 3 verse 13 that christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us we were under a curse because of our sin but christ took our curse on himself and he paid the penalty as he hung on that tree that curse was the wrath of god so in order to redeem man 
Jesus had first to fulfill all righteousness and second to endure the wrath of the Father for the sin of man. The third thing that he had to do was to submit to physical death, to die. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15 says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. Now, normally we group the Lord's suffering on the cross and his actual death together. Together they make up his sacrificial death. Now, typically, I wouldn't separate them like this, but I think you'll see why I did so this time as we move forward in the sermon. But for now, I just want to emphasize that both were necessary. Jesus had to suffer the wrath of the Father, and he had to die. It would not have been enough for him just to suffer but not to die, nor would it have been enough to die without suffering his father's wrath. And then the fourth thing that he had to do to accomplish the redemption of man was resurrection. He had to rise from the dead. He said that he would. Mark 8, verse 31, is just one example in the Gospels of Jesus predicting his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus taught them that the Son of Man, who is Jesus, must suffer many things, that he must be killed, and that he would rise again. And when he did, When he rose again on the third day, it validated every claim that he ever made. It proved that he really was who he said he was, God the Son. And it showed that he had, in fact, accomplished the redemption of man. Jesus came to defeat death. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10 says that our Savior, Jesus Christ, abolished death. He destroyed it. If death still held him in the grave, how could that be true? But Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated death. The entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 deals with Jesus' victory over death and its ramifications for us. And then near the end of the chapter, 54 verses down, Paul exclaims, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because Jesus Christ has defeated death. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, what does all that have to do with our text this morning? Well, everything in Scripture points to this, either directly or indirectly. Everything in Scripture leads us back to Christ and what he accomplished. 
So every text of Scripture has to do with this. But specifically, how does this connect to Philippians chapter 3? Look at this, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes about being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And as we saw last week, this righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, this righteousness that comes from God, is the righteousness that Jesus fulfilled when he was on earth. When I put my faith in Christ, his righteousness, the righteousness that he lived out when he was on earth, is credited to my account. So that when the Father looks at me, he gives me standing with him as though I had lived that righteous life, even though I've fallen far short of it. And then one day, when I stand before him in judgment, he will judge me based on the righteousness fulfilled by Christ. And I will enter into eternal life, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And so the message of verse 9 is that I may gain the righteousness of Christ. I must have his righteousness credited to my account if I'm going to be saved. And Paul says it can happen. And we dealt with that in detail last week. In verse 10, it says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Specifically, his suffering on the cross. Now, just as I may gain his righteousness, I may also share in his sufferings. Just as I can benefit from his righteousness, I can also benefit from his sufferings. And Paul continues in verse 10, becoming like him in his death. I may gain his righteousness, I may share in his sufferings, and I may also become like him in his death. And that's not the end. According to Paul, here in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 11, he concludes that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, of course, this is directly connected to his resurrection, to Jesus' resurrection. Just as his righteousness, followed by his suffering and death, led to his resurrection, so it is that when I gain his righteousness, and when I share in his sufferings, and when I become like him in his death, that I too may attain the resurrection from the dead. Everything that Jesus did on earth 
worked toward our redemption. And somehow, we need to participate in all of it. It has to be applied to us in some way. That's what Paul is showing us in this passage. That I may gain and share and become and attain everything that Christ accomplished in his life for the sake of my redemption. But how? How do I gain and share and become and attain these things? Well, let's break it down. Now, we're going to spend most of our time, remaining time this morning, talking about wrath or, or his suffering. But first, I want to revisit righteousness. We talked about righteousness last week. But because there is a parallel in the way that these are applied, we can learn something by considering righteousness and then applying what we know about righteousness and what it means to gain the righteousness of Christ, we can apply that to these other areas as well. So there are two truths about righteousness that I want to bring out. And these two truths also apply to the other areas that we're going to talk about. And we'll apply them to suffering this morning. And then they also apply to death and to resurrection. And I believe that by considering these truths in light of righteousness, which I think is, is easier for us to understand, that that will help us to understand when we come to these other areas as well. So, the first truth about righteousness, the one we spent most of last week dealing with, is the righteousness that saves is accomplished by Christ and Christ alone. You do nothing to contribute to it. The righteousness that he lived during his life on earth is the basis for your standing with God. And it will be the basis on which you are judged worthy to enter eternal life, if you are in Christ. This is the only way that you can be saved. By Christ's righteousness, received through faith. That was the whole point of verse 9 here in Philippians chapter 3. Being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You don't need to do anything, and indeed you can't do anything to add to it. God grants you this righteousness, this standing through faith. But the second truth about righteousness is this. When you are in Christ, your manner of life will reflect his righteousness. 
We've seen this in Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul exhorted the Philippians based on their being in Christ, which he spent the first majority of the chapter establishing that they were in Christ. If you're in Christ, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. In other words, live in a righteous way that reflects what God has accomplished in your life. And a little further down, Paul makes it clear that God will do this in you. It's his work. In Philippians 2, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And and this is the clear teaching throughout Scripture. In 1 John 3, verse 9, it says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. When you were born of God, when you are in Christ, You are changed, and God continues to change you so that you continually become more Christ-like in righteousness. Now, these two principles can be stated more broadly in a way that extends beyond just his righteousness. Because as we saw earlier, Although Jesus' righteousness was essential to our salvation, it took more than just a righteous life to save us. So let's broaden our first principle to say not just that the righteousness that saves you is accomplished by Christ and Christ alone, but that Christ and Christ alone accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. And let's broaden the second principle to say, not just that when you are in Christ, not just to say when you are in Christ, your manner of life will reflect his righteousness, but that when you are in Christ, our lives will reflect every aspect of our salvation. And now we can apply these principles um, and the other, to the other things that Christ accomplished in our salvation. And that Paul says here in Philippians that we need to participate in. So let's move on to Jesus' sufferings. Paul said in verse 10 that I may share in his sufferings. Now, this can be confusing for some, and and it has caused confusion. What does it mean to share in Jesus' sufferings? The first thing that I want to do is to apply our first principle. Christ and Christ alone has accomplished 
everything necessary for our salvation. That was true of the righteous life that he fulfilled. And it's also true of the wrath that he suffered on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, just before he died on the cross, he meant that the Father was satisfied. Our sins were propitiated. The necessary suffering to pay the penalty for our sin was complete. No more suffering was needed in order to redeem man. Jesus paid it all. There is, however, a Roman Catholic teaching called redemptive suffering that rejects this truth. It's included in their catechism. It is the teaching that when we suffer in union with Christ, that we can remit or cancel out the just penalty for our own sin or even for the sins of others. Now, it can be any kind of suffering, according to this teaching. It could be a sickness. If you suffer from being sick, and if you associate it with Jesus' suffering, then you can help to remit either your own punishment or even the punishment of others. It could be suffering from being deprived of something that you need, or it could be suffering that comes from persecution, or any kind of suffering. Any kind of suffering, according to this Roman Catholic teaching, can be redemptive suffering. Some have even deliberately inflicted suffering on themselves because they believed that they were accomplishing this redemptive suffering. They'd flog themselves. Or there are various pilgrimages that they would travel barefoot. Or stairs that they would climb on their knees. Most notably the Scala Santa in Rome. They believe that the pain that they inflict on themselves contributes to their own redemption or to the redemption of others. Now, of course, this is an affront to the cross. The idea that we could add anything to what Christ did or that there was anything left over to do after the Lord committed his, uh, completed his work minimizes what he did. And it's dangerous for any who would put any trust in their own suffering and not wholly trust on what Jesus accomplished by his suffering. It can be very much like relying on your own righteousness, thinking that you can add something, whether big or small, to what Christ has done for you. So this is what share in his suffering does not mean. It does not mean to suffer in union with him or in association with him in a way that contributes to your redemption or anyone else's redemption. However, the second principle still applies. When we are in Christ, 
our lives will reflect Christ in every aspect of our salvation. And suffering is part of what is included in being Christ-like. Let me repeat that. Suffering is part of what is included in being Christ-like. It doesn't have any redemptive value, but it is part of being in Christ. And we only have to go one chapter back in Philippians to see it. In Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, have this mind or this attitude among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. And what does that attitude entail? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He suffered And the attitude that led him to that, willingly to suffer, is the same attitude that is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, the nature of the suffering won't be the same. And it certainly won't accomplish anyone's redemption. But Christ-like people suffer because they're Christ-like. In Matthew 16, verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That includes suffering. Again, in John 16, verse 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Tribulation, suffering, is a fact of life for those who are in Christ. The world hated him, and they will surely hate us too. And suffering will also be a cost of serving others of submitting to others, of loving others. This was Paul's larger point in Philippians chapter 2. Submit to each other. Be willing to sacrifice and suffer for each other. But suffering is more than just a necessary byproduct of being in Christ. It also serves a purpose in our lives just not the purpose of redemption. James, in James 1, verses 2 2 through 4, he wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses trials, which are suffering, to produce 
steadfastness in our lives, which in turn produces maturity in Christ. It has an effect on our manner of life to the work that God is accomplishing in us. But it doesn't contribute to redemption. This is also what Peter means when he discusses the effect of trials in our lives in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The imagery here is of gold, which contains impurities. And so it is placed in a crucible, and it's heated up to extreme temperatures. And when it melts, the gold, which is heavier, more substantial than the impurities, settles while the lighter impurities rise to the top where they can be removed. And so it is with our faith. It is in times of trial, of suffering, that the impurities are separated out and are removed by God. And God uses heat to do that. But it doesn't accomplish or even contribute to redemption. It causes our manner of life to reflect the Lord Jesus. We are redeemed by his life and his sufferings and his death. But when we are sanctified throughout this life, in part through trials and suffering, so to share in his sufferings has two aspects. To share in Christ's sufferings means that the payment that Jesus made for our sin is credited to our account. Now, prior to this transaction taking place, you owed an enormous debt. The penalty for sin was one that you would be paying for the rest of of eternity. But Jesus paid a price by suffering the Father's wrath on the cross. And that price that he paid was sufficient for the sins of all. So when you come to Christ, you gain a share in his sufferings. The punishment that he endured is applied to your account and your sin is paid for in the sight of the Father. We sing this when we sing the hymn. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That I gained an interest, a share in his blood, 
in his sufferings. So that is one aspect of what it means to share in Christ's suffering. That the payment that he made for sin, when he suffered on the cross, is credited to our account. We share in it because it goes to our account. The other aspect is that as I become continually more Christ-like, and as I reflect his character, I will naturally suffer in service to him and in service to those around me, and he will use suffering in trials to continue to make me more like him. So to share in Christ's suffering also means to Be Christ-like, which includes suffering. So yes, you will suffer in this life. And yes, it has value. It has direct value in your sanctification for maturing in the faith. It also has indirect value as you sacrifice and submit in service to God and to others. But it does not have redemptive value. Christ and Christ alone paid the penalty for your sin. And none of your suffering contributes to that at all. So go and suffer well this week. Consider it joy when you do for what he is accomplishing through it. But continue to give him all the credit for your redemption because he alone has accomplished it for you by his righteousness, by his suffering and death, all validated by his resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your son did accomplish it all. He achieved everything that was necessary. That is such great news for us, Father, because we are unable to contribute anything. And we would still be lost if he hadn't done it all. So, Father, thank you for that. Father, I pray that you would continue to impress that truth on us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.